Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director at Word on Fire. Today, we're going to pick up on a series we began a couple weeks ago. We shared the first half of Bishop Robert Barron's talk to the Knights of Malta. That talk was titled, Ideas Have Consequences, The Philosophers That Shaped 2020. And in that talk, he looked at four major thinkers whose ideas have shaped the culture that we currently find ourselves in, especially the convulsions that reverberate through rioting, accusations, scapegoating, violence, and the deep unrest in many of our streets and cities. The four thinkers are Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Michel Foucault. In the previous episode, we looked at Marx and Nietzsche. So if you missed that, you might want to go back. I think it's episode 256. But in this episode, we're going to share the second half of Bishop Barron's talk, which focuses on Sartre and Foucault. So sit back and enjoy the rest of Bishop Barron's talk titled Ideas Have Consequences. And with that, I want to move to this third figure. So the first two Germans from the 19th century. The next two are Frenchmen from the 20th century. And the first is probably the most famous philosopher of the 20th century. Probably most of us in in at least Philosophy 101 would have had some exposure to this figure. I'm talking about Jean-Paul Sartre. Now, Sartre was um, very influenced by Nietzsche. Nietzsche's impact on the 20th century is enormous. Think of his influence on someone like Martin Heidegger and all those that come out of the Heideggerian school. But his influence on the two I'll look at next, Sartre and Foucault, was enormous. A bit about Jean-Paul Sartre. Born in Paris in 1905, he studies at the École Normale Supérieure, um, the Superior Normal School. Uh, That was about 10 minutes from the house that I lived in when I was a doctoral student in Paris. Uh, It's the cream of the crop of the uh, French intellectual system, the education system. So the best and brightest figures in the 20th century tended to be what they call normaliens, normalians, right? Students at the École Normale. So Sartre um, studies there. He then enters into the French educational system. So the graduates typically then would be sent out to lycée, we, we call them high schools, and then they'd move up through the system. And so Sartre did that for a time, but then eventually left it behind and becomes, by the 1940s and 50s and, and onward, maybe the, the paradigmatic public intellectual. So and he's more than a philosopher. Sartre is also a, a playwright and a novelist, a social commentator. Uh, a man of the mind, but also a man of, of social action. His greatest work, undoubtedly, is, um, we call it in English, Being and Nothingness, Lettre le Néon, Being and Non-Being. He was involved famously in the Résistance, right, the resistance to the Nazis during World War II. Sartre dies in Paris in 1980. Now, to understand his thought, I think there's a really good place to go. It's a little book he wrote and appeared in 1946, and it's called Existentialism is a Humanism. Existentialism, so he's the founder of this famous philosophy. Existentialism is a humanism. 
It's a little book based on a lecture he gave right after the war. So the, I think it was in late 1945. And it was there in the you know, Latin Quarter and it was at the, the height of the, of the um, kind of cafe philosophers and so on. And Sartre gives this lecture and it becomes the basis for this uh, book. And it's, it's a very pithy and well-written book, too. Uh, not true of all of Sartre's writings, but this one I find very uh, easy to read. And the central idea of his existentialist philosophy is clearly articulated. And here's how he does it. By existentialism, I mean the view that existence precedes essence. The view that existence precedes essence. Now, I know that sounds desperately abstract, but it's actually a pretty straightforward idea. By essence, Sartre means that whole system of ideas and patterns and ideals and forms by which an individual and a society typically would be governed. So what does it mean to be human? Well, there's kind of an essential pattern that's been presented you know, by philosophers and by theologians and, and by the state. What does it mean to lead a good life? Well, listen to all these representatives of these essential forms, and they'll tell you what that looks like. What's the drama of life? Well, to bring existence, and by existence he means my individual self, especially my freedom, to bring existence into line with essence, right? So you're, you're a little kid, you're trying to learn to be a, a responsible adult. Well, all kinds of people will tell you, here's what it looks like. Here's the essential form of being human. Now bring your freedom, your individuality, your existence into line with essence. So you see, on the classical reading, essence precedes existence. See what I mean? Precedes it both kind of chronologically and ontologically, meaning there's kind of a superiority to essence over existence. My life is to kind of accept in a humility of spirit the, the, the objectivity of these essential principles. Okay. Sartre says, my philosophy is a Copernican revolution. My philosophy is going to turn that upside down because I say existence precedes essence. Now, you see what he means. A plague on your, on your essential forms, a plague on, on your idea of what the good life is. What comes first is existence. That means my individuality, especially my freedom. And then on the basis of that freedom, I determine who I will be. I determine the form or pattern of my life. You don't tell me how to live. No institution, no society, no church tells me how to live. I will decide how to live. Existence precedes essence. Existentialism. You know, in light of that, and that starts little book, in light of that, we can understand more clearly his big book, Lettre de Néon, Being and Nothingness. You think, okay, nothingness. Is he a nihilist? Well, he's a Nietzschean in the sense that he is indeed denying the objectivity of these uh, intellectual truths and moral values. But see how Sartre understands le néon, the non-being, the nothing, not as something oppressive and negative, 
but kind of like a blank canvas. There's no objective truth or, or value, so I can invent it. I can paint my own beautiful picture according to my lights on the blank canvas of le néant, of the nothing. Just as in Nietzsche, this, this death of God opens up this space into which the will to power can assert itself. So now in Sartre, it opens up the space for existence, for my self-assertive freedom to say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm about. Again, I'll come back to this in a little bit, but I hope you can see all kinds of overtones for the way an awful lot of people think today. In fact, I've said for years that what was once whispered in the cafes of Paris, this idea, is now the default position of most young people today. Don't tell me who I am. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't tell me how to behave. I decide. The assertion of my liberty, my existence, that precedes essence. You know, here's a final connection. Marx uh, was an atheist. Nietzsche's atheist. Uh, Sard is aggressively atheist. Now, how come? Well, he puts it in a very pithy formula in um, existentialism is a humanism. Here it is. If God exists, I cannot be free. But I am free. Therefore, God does not exist. That's a pithy little syllogism. But you see what it rests upon. To some degree, the political structure represents essence, right? It, it tells you who you should be, how you should behave. To some degree, the family represents essence to us. To some degree, the culture represents essence to us. But what is the ultimate representative, the ultimate uh, avatar of essence? But God. God, and again, traditionally, the ground of objective truth and moral value, proposes to us this essential form of life that we ought to conform to. Therefore, if God exists, Sartre says, I can't really be free. God's the ultimate limit to my freedom. Therefore, as I discover the primacy of my freedom, of my existence, I realize God does not exist. God's the ultimate threat to the Sartrean program. And so, uh, so he, he deeply perceived. And that leads me to the final of these four players, namely Michel Foucault. This final player is perhaps the least known of the four, but he is, I would argue, perhaps the most directly influential on the present-day conversation and the present-day praxis. In some ways, Foucault represents, by the way, his name is, is spelled F-O-U-C-A-U-L-T, Michel Foucault. Um, in some ways, he represents the summing up of the three figures we've already looked at. Uh, just a bit about him personally. He was born in Poitiers in 1926, so now we're getting closer to our own time. Like Sartre, he was a Normalien, so he studied at the École Normale, and he was, you know, at the, at the very height of the French uh, educational system. Taught for some years in that system afterwards, but, but he also taught at the University of Uppsala in Sweden in the 60s. During the 60s and 70s, Michel Foucault produced a series of books that were uh, sensations in France. Even though they were extremely complicated, some became bestsellers. 
and then they became very well known around uh, the Western world. Uh, his famous studies, and I'll get into some of this, of sexuality, of madness, and incarceration were very widely read. He died young. He was only 57 when he died in 1984. I can tell you, uh, I came to France in 1989 to begin my doctoral studies. And, you know, in Paris, I used to say that every block has got a restaurant and a bookstore. They want to feed your body and they want to feed your mind. Well, looking out of, of the window of practically every bookstore that I would go to in the late 80s was the owlish visage of uh, Michel Foucault. He had this striking face, bald head and these little glasses and, and sort of an intense expression. So he was very much of a, of a player in those years that I was uh, in Paris. His writing is dense, his thought is notoriously complicated, but I think it's fair to say the main lines of his philosophy can be articulated fairly um, simply. In the books uh, that I just described, he engages in what he himself called an archaeology of knowledge. And that's a, it's a very interesting way to look at it. So think of an archaeological dig. So you begin on the surface, right? What's, what's there today? As you dig down in the same location, you're going to come to an earlier version of that place. And then you dig down more to an even earlier version of that city. And then you dig down, you dig down, and you go through various layers in the same spot, but yet different uh, incarnations, if you want, of that same uh, place. So that's a master metaphor for the kind of work he does. Now, here's the way it typically works in Foucault. Take something like um, sexuality. So you begin on the surface and say, well, what does our society today say about sexual behavior? What's acceptable? What's unacceptable? What's okay? What's not? Etc. Well, then dig down below that to earlier expressions of what we thought was right, wrong, acceptable, unacceptable. Then dig down deeper, dig down deeper, go all the way down to ancient times. And what you'll find, Michel Foucault typically would say, is an extraordinary variety. What we say now is, is good and right and appropriate sexually, well, wasn't true, let's say, in ancient times. And, you know, he shows that in great detail, but go back to ancient Rome, ancient Greece, their sexual mores were certainly not the same as ours. Now, the same with something like incarceration. He was fascinated by that. Why do we punish certain people? What, what crimes are punishable? And why do we, let's say, punish with capital punishment certain things? And why do we incarcerate for certain periods of time? Well, the same thing obtains, he thought. Start today and the way we think about those issues. But then keep digging. Go back in time. Go back to the 19th century. Go back to the 17th century. Go back to the Middle Ages. Go back to ancient times. You're digging in the same place, so to speak. You're digging on this issue of incarceration, but you're coming to all kinds of different ways of understanding it. Issue after issue. That's what he typically does. Now, two observations. First, it's to some degree in service of the Nietzschean idea, and Foucault is very influenced by Nietzsche, that there really is nothing like objectively true and good states of affairs. So clearly, this is the right way to think about sexuality or the right way to think about incarceration because he says, look, we thought about them differently all throughout our history. So it is in service of a kind of Nietzschean relativism or perspectivism. Okay, but here's the second thing. Foucault isn't satisfied with that. He asks the follow-up question. Well, how do you account for these differences? 
How come one society thinks about it this way, the next society another way, and our society a third way? How do you explain that? Here's his basic answer, now repeated over and over again in his writings. It's become a master idea on the scene today. And this again is very Nietzschean in inspiration. Finally, Foucault argues, it's a function of power. Those who are in power will arrange things, states of affairs, and even more importantly, they will organize language in such a way as to keep themselves in power. Now, I say language. His uh, preferred uh, phrase is modes of discourse. In other words, there's a way of talking about things, whether it's sexuality, it's uh, who's insane and who's not, who should be incarcerated, who shouldn't be, any other issue. There's a way of talking about those issues that, that aren't reflective of some objective state of affair, some objectively right or wrong, but are rather functions of the drive to power. One class of people that finds itself in power will do all they can to maintain themselves in power. They will indeed manipulate circumstances, but more importantly, they will manipulate language so as to maintain themselves in power. So again, this is Michel Foucault's way of thinking about it. Heterosexuals will tend to demonize homosexuals, condemn homosexuality. Now, why? Because, well, clearly one's right, one's wrong. No, he would say, in order to maintain their own societal dominance. Males will characterize females as misbegotten or incomplete versions of males, and that's true up and down you know, much of the tradition, so that they, the males, might remain in charge. Whites stigmatize blacks, first as slaves, and then maybe less dramatically as social inferiors, in order to maintain white supremacy. I wonder if that sounds at all familiar to you. Most of this, Foucault thinks, is done unconsciously rather than consciously. And I was just sort of suggesting the way it happens consciously, that people will arrange things a certain way, or they will consciously change language. But it's fair to say he thinks most of it's done unconsciously. Just the way that, you know, I'll inherit a language long before I begin to speak it in any distinctive or creative way, right? I'm speaking English now, but I inherited English with all of its rules and all of its presuppositions. So in a similar way, Foucault thought, people in a given society will inherit modes of discourse, ways of talking about things. So what's a large part of the program for him? And again, this is rather Nietzschean. A large part of the program is to see the play between oppressor and oppressed. To uncover these dynamics and to see how the modes of discourse we use are enforcing or propagating these uh, forms of oppression. You know, you might say it's um, Nietzsche's will to power, but with a greater stress placed on the, on the injustice of the power relationship. So for Nietzsche, you've just got clashing wills to power. Foucault, and it's, I think it's a bit of a contradiction in the system because he sees you know, this kind of oppression is bad. Well, you just told me there really is no objective moral value. Isn't that an objective moral value? But that's for another day. But he does want to um, unmask these forms of oppression and to see the ways that language contributes to all of it. Okay, so we looked at Marx, we looked at Nietzsche, looked at Sartre, looked at Foucault. 
Can I suggest now by way of conclusion, how all these figures are indeed influencing the present conversation and some of the present activity that we see. You know, maybe first this observation, as a student and teacher of philosophy for many years, I've always resented the claim that, um, well, you know, philosophy, that's all these abstract ideas, has nothing to do with the real world. Come on, if there's one thing that history has proven is that ideas have consequences. It might take time, but the ideas I've been uh, rehearsing here, this sort of farrago of ideas from these four figures, have definitely found their way into the academies of the West. And through those academies have indeed influenced now several generations of people. I think what we see on the scene in many ways today are these ideas incarnating themselves. So don't, don't uh, poo-poo philosophy. I mean, philosophy might take time, but it does have a practical consequence. So let's go back now to each one of them and just very briefly pull out some of these implications. From Karl Marx, what do we see? I think we see, perhaps above all, an antagonistic social theory. A social theory of antagonism. For Marx, the only way profit can be derived is through some kind of oppression, the capitalist oppressing the worker. The revolution is all about calling attention to this oppressive relationship and leading, finally, a violent revolution of the oppressed against their oppressor. The role of the Marxist intellectual is to break through the superstructure, is to reveal these dynamics and to foster revolution. Violence for a Marxist is not a regrettable side effect. In a way, violence is the point, right? You want to foment the class struggle. You want to foment these um, antagonisms. The second major theme is the one I was dwelling on a bit, that substructure, superstructure, so important. Marx has been called, it was Paul Ricoeur, the philosopher that came up with this term, he's been called a master of suspicion. Uh, Ricoeur thought Freud was a master of suspicion too, so was Nietzsche. The idea is that, yeah, I know things look this way, but what's really going on is something more fundamental and usually more nefarious. So I know things look kind of nice on the surface, you know, the arts and politics and religion and so on, but what's really going on is this kind of grubby uh, substructure. I'd submit to you, everybody, that you can hear this rhetoric and see the praxis that flows from it today. We need to smash through elements of the superstructure to get at the kind of grubby substructure. How about now from Friedrich Nietzsche? Well, I would say this. We find clearly today, at least in the minds of some, the rejection of God and the related calling into question of the objectivity of truth and moral value. Once these have been cleared out, indeed, what's left is a play of powerful forces, a clash of wills. Have you noticed this? And you know, I do a lot of work on the internet where I try to engage in argument, <laughs> appealing to something like a common set of, of norms and values. Gosh, how difficult it is in the social media world to get a real argument going. Well, why? Because people have denied the objectivity of, of truth and value. So what's there to argue about? All that's left is a play of, of wills, a clash of powerful wills. You know, how about this, everybody? I, I, I uh, watch the movies because the movies are such an indicator of where a popular culture is going. 
And one thing I found is in almost every movie, the climax is the hero or heroine finding his own voice, finding her voice and her will. There's never a question of, well, is it the right voice? Is it a good expression of the will? Is it corresponding to some objective value? No, no, it's, I found who I am. I'm standing. Well, see, that's the Nietzschean space, if you want. There is no objective truth or value, but there is the heroic assertion of the will. That's the Nietzschean program, if you want. How about from Jean-Paul Sartre? Well, what I've often termed the culture of self-invention. That's an entirely Sartrean idea. And the culture of self-invention is rampant today. As I suggest, it's the default position, I think, of most younger people. If essence has disappeared, so remember Sartre, existence precedes essence. Existence comes first, my freedom, my will, and then I determine who I am. Well, if essence is even est, then everything, from sexuality, gender, human nature, moral systems, are finally just social constructs. They're the inventions of, of people's uh, wills. So they can be overturned by the heroic, self-assertive um, freedom. You know, again, speaking of movies, watch the movie, won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 2018, called The Shape of Water. I don't know if you saw that movie, it's not very good, but when I, I finished seeing it, I turned to the person next to me and said, trust me, it's gonna win the Academy Award for Best Picture. I just knew it because it checked every box of this system. Remember the story is about this woman, this kind of mousy woman, not very confident, and then she finds her voice and finds her freedom, and she falls in love romantically with a fish man. I'm not making this up, that's the movie, right? But here's what's interesting about that. The shape of water, well, what shape does water have? It doesn't have any shape. Water is just fluid. It's, it's infinitely malleable. It has whatever shape you want to give it, right? You want to put it in a bowl, you want to put it in a glass. You... Water is malleable. There's, there's nothing substantial about it. It has the shape that you give it. That's Jean-Paul Sartre. That's existentialism. My freedom comes first. Everything else um, follows. Do you remember um, <laughs> there was a... There was a uh, interviewer that went to a university campus some years ago and um, was interviewing people. And the, and the guy was a, a young man, like, you know, six feet tall, maybe 30 years old. And uh, he was asking people on campus, uh, now, if, if I said that I'm a woman, would you be okay with that? And they, oh, yeah, sure, you know, as long as that's what you claim to be. And then he said, um, now, what if I said I'm an I'm a Asian woman? Would, would you agree with that? And they said, well, yeah, if that's the identity that you claim, sure. Then the last question, which did give them some pause, I must say, he said, what if I claim that I was a six foot five Asian woman? And they hesitated a little bit, but at the end of the day, most of them said, yeah, if that's what you claim to be, that's who you are. Well, you know what that is, everybody? That's the shape of water. That's Sartrean existentialism run amok. If existence precedes essence, my freedom comes first, I determine who I am, well, why not? <laughs> why not? A 30-year-old, uh, six-foot-tall uh, Caucasian man can be whatever he wants. That's the victory of existence over essence that's on the scene today. Finally, from Michel Foucault, who, as I said, I think sums up uh, uh, the three previous figures. I think this... Uh, uh, viewpoint today gets its deep preoccupation 
with language and the policing thereof. You know, in a way, Foucault combines the antagonistic social theory of Marx with Nietzsche's great stress on power. So they say he sees that uh, the, the play of wills is the play of oppressor and oppressed with the oppressor using language as a prime weapon. And so can you see this extraordinary interest today in the way we talk and how groups perceived to be powerful use language to keep other people um, at bay or under control? All the talk about microaggressions and triggers and disguised sexism, racism, homophobia, transphobia, most of it carried by language. That's all right out of the Michel Foucault uh, playbook. Okay, I'm going to bring the talk to a close. Uh, you have to invite me back to give a full sort of ecclesial response to all this, but let me just say a couple things as I bring it to a close. I hope it's clear that as I lay out these four thinkers, and, and mind you, every one of them has very interesting and, and fascinating things to say. I'm not in a one-sided way just trying to dismiss all these thinkers. But I hope it's clear that, generally speaking, the church stands athwart almost all of this. How come? First of all, because we speak of God. What's one thing that all four of these thinkers, Marx, Nietzsche, Sartre, Foucault, have in common? The denial of God. And I think you see why. If God exists as the supreme truth and value, then there's an objective ground for these things. Key to all four of these systems is a kind of dismantling of the objectivity of truth and value. Therefore, the institution that speaks most clearly of God is going to stand athwart this point of view. And then by extension, that speaks of objective truth and moral value. That's going to be problematic. Next, Marx and, and Foucault as well, Sartre too in his own way, have an antagonistic social theory. There's a kind of essential struggle involved in the, the social order. The whole point of the Marxist revolution is to, is to foment this class struggle. The church proposes in its social teaching a cooperative social theory, not an antagonistic one. It doesn't see violence as the means to affecting social change, but rather cooperation. Maybe most uh, profoundly, the church, as Jean-Paul Sartre correctly saw, is the supreme representative of essence, of the precedence, if you want, of essence over existence. The drama, the adventure is not, you know, finding my freedom and asserting it. No, no, the drama, the, the glory, the, the, the fun of life is bringing my freedom onto line with these great and beautiful and compelling intellectual and moral values that stand outside of me, that, that draw me to themselves. See, I, I've always found Sartrean existentialism with its roots in these earlier thinkers as finally a deeply dull system because you take away the, the compelling power of these great objective values. All I'm left with is the boring little space of my self-assertive ego. Ho-hum. This little tiny world that I'm living in. No, no, I'm much more interested 
to use von Balthasar's language, in the theodrama, not the boring little ego drama that I'm in charge of and it's my ideas and my goals. Who cares? But the theodrama where, where this world of objective value is drawing me to itself and then behind that realm of objective value is the supreme truth and value of God. That's not oppressive to my freedom. That it awakens and invites and, and lifts me up in my freedom. See, Sartre knew that, everybody. He knew the church stood athwart the system. We still do. Can you see now, I'll close with this, why so many of the forces influenced by these thinkers don't like us? (laughs) It's not just because they've got some little cultural hang-up. No, no, they know, they know that Catholicism, above all, stands athwart these philosophical assumptions. So, It's good for us to know, I think, where a lot of this um, ideation today comes from, to step back and look at these philosophical sources, but also to claim our own great tradition as the best way to stand against it. And God bless you. Well, we hope you enjoyed the second half of Bishop Barron's talk titled Ideas Have Consequences, The Philosophers That Shape 2020. Again, if you missed the first half, go back and listen to it at wordonfireshow.com. It's episode 256. That's where Bishop Barron talks about Karl Marx and Friedrich Nietzsche. But next week, we will have Bishop Barron back in the studio for another great discussion episode. So look forward to that, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.